3rd, it is 2012. Our message this morning is the call of God. Amen. Spiritual warfare. While I knew the presence of the Lord was in the room, while I felt His power, while you felt His power, I wanted to go over some things with you. I wanted to show you some things in the Word. We live in a time, friends, where the rightness of the gospel, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus is being perverted everywhere. One of the things that I wanted to show you is that this calling of God is an intense battle. It's a battle over the souls for every human being. As soon as God begins to call a person, the fight starts. The devil will try anything to abort, to handicap, or defraud the authentic work of God. He's often done this most efficiently through an ineffective religion. It only inoculates the potential believer from the true working of God's Holy Spirit. This is why we have people everywhere walking around, and they have said all of the right things, but there is none of the right fruit. When I was in the physical therapy business, if we went to a group of a thousand people and we needed to teach a sewing factory about corporal tunnel syndrome, we couldn't list every symptom for corporal tunnel syndrome because we found out quickly we were simply teaching the people how to present the symptoms. So what we did is we presented the most prevalent ones. We said, you'll find that you have a numbness and a tingling in this area. You'll find that you have pain in this area. And then we took all of the people together. And most importantly, we did not tell them what you would not have with corporal tunnel. So that we could say, oh, you have numbness. Yes, yes. You have tingling. Yes, yes. You have it in these two fingers. Yes. Then you must also have it right here, huh? Yes, yes. I have it there as well. And it's not possible. We need a litmus test for the church, friends. We, we have learned to say all of the right things. Say, how are you saved? And we can spit it out like theologians. And yet there is no power of God in our midst so often. Joy. In 2 Timothy, this is a familiar passage, but I want to show you an unfamiliar part of the passage. This is the third chapter, first verse. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. That's not true in America, is it? They will be lovers of money. That's not true in the church, is it? Lovers of money? Pastor, do I tithe on gross or net? Really? This is, this is the most pressing concern you have? Pastor, do, do you, really, you really think God is interested in all of these things? No, we're not lovers of money. It is the deity in the American church. Boastful. My steeple's higher than yours. Proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. You cannot go to the zoo with your friends today without seeing children that are so disobedient to their parents that it grieves the soul. Am I the only one in here that is wrenched in my spirit to see children look at their parents and tell them no? Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Bless me, Lord. Unholy. 
without love, unforgiving. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. This part you're pretty familiar with. We've heard many times. They look godly. They say the right things. But there's no power. And we say, well, what, what kind of power? What are we looking for? Let us keep reading. Have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kind of evil desires. What is the mark of a powerless church? One that is loaded down with sin. One that is swayed by every evil desire. In our time, we've defined sin as doing something that God has said for you not to do. You sin when you listen to the wrong music. You sin when you smoke a cigarette. You sin when you listen to the, when you do the, when you act the. And we have so missed it. This is not the great sin of the church. The great sin of the church is not that you are sitting here in pornography, though some of you are. The great sin of the church is not that you're sitting here in financial idolatry, although some of you are. The great sin of the church is that we know the good that we should do, and we do not do it. In our churches, we have two different kinds of altar calls. We have an altar call that says, if you need to be saved, come forward. Because God knows this is just a one-time instant thing. It's like making oatmeal, except it's faster. And if you need to repent or rededicate, then come forward. What makes you think those two things are different in any way, shape, or form? So, well, I was already saved. I just needed to be re repentant. What do you think happens to you if you will not repent? Who gave us the right to declare ourselves saved forever no matter what happens? Live like hell. Who gave us that right? How many people do you know that have had a warm, fuzzy experience at an altar? They spoke in other tongues. And for a month or two they did good. But they refused to do what God told them to do. So they will die with the Egyptians in the desert. I see it all the time. Some of you are sitting here today. You know that God has told you you must. And instead you act like it's optional. This is what James 4.17 calls sin. I know, Pastor, I know that I cannot aid my adult children in doing what is wrong. But, Pastor, they're my children. It's not Pastor you have a problem with. Amen. I know, Pastor, that the Word says I cannot live with somebody and not be married to them. But, you know, Pastor, we're trying to work it out. Are you kidding me? Amen. In what generation would this have been okay besides this one? In what time period would this ever have passed as Christianity? Amen. But it passes today because you just go to the next church. Amen. You just move right on down the road and you find one where it's palatable, acceptable. But what if you did all of that work and you walked in that way your entire life and you stood before him and he said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. Amen. Did you do my father's will? Amen. What happens when the weight of either having done or not done the Father's will falls upon us and doctrine won't save us and all of the petty grudges and excuses will not save us? 
Well, did you see the way he looked at me? He looks at me that way because I'm from Louisiana. Are you kidding? Do you think that God is going to put up with this? Church, I'm, I'm hurt in my spirit. And I realize there's too much of those verses in me too. Because the Lord says to do something and we say, I will, Lord. But how long does it do? Do we run like Philip to the chariot? We move forward, joy. Paul Washer and Pilgrim's Progress are two things that I have appreciated here lately. Paul Washer is a Baptist preacher, although I don't know how long they'll continue to accept him. He preaches about the fire of God in a way that is convicting to my spirit, and I'm more identified with his version of Christianity, the true version, than I do all of the charismatic and Pentecostal people I see on the purple-haired station. He may never speak in other tongues in all of his life, but he has power over sin. And those who are speaking in other tongues and prophesying are using their gifting like Balaam to fleece people. This is sin. Yes. It's the great sin of our time. And we just act like it's an option. Yes. Something that I could not miss as we listened to the Pilgrim's Progress on a road trip yesterday for the second time. I read the book twice and listened to it twice. The man travailed and travailed and travailed just to get to the narrow gate. And we act like it comes in a second. He was so crushed by his burden that even when he fell into a swamp, he fought his way out. When his friends turned back, he fought his way out because he had to get to the gate. We go, oh, well, then it's over. The gate is the celestial city. It was the beginning of his race. The beginning. And everywhere there were divergent paths. Do you know that this was the best-selling book in the English-speaking world for more than 300 years? And many of you have never even heard of it. Why do you think that is in our time that a book like that is no longer popular? We get to the Last 10% of the book in a man named Faithful who has been walking with the Lord for the entire time. His friends ask him, how did you come to get rid of your burden? Was it the first time that you prayed? He said, no. Was it the second time? No, it was not the second time. They repeated this pattern until we got to the sixth. And he said, no, it may have been more than a hundred, but I would not stop until it was gone. Amen. Where is the travailing? We have so shortcutted the processes of God. We have so substituted ourselves for the work of the Holy Spirit that when somebody comes to the altar, feels bad for a moment, we declare them saved and send them back to their seats to tithe and sit actionless, fruitless, deedless, but full of sin. And devoid of power. Tell me I'm lying. No. It's going on in church after church and not just out there. How many in here have made professions at this altar, been prayed with, and then lived absolutely no differently two months later? In one month, we saw 23 people filled with the Holy Ghost in my living room. Six months later, we have a few that are straggling, just straining to hang on to the faith. But they're so overloaded with sin, they can't keep their head above water. And maybe just a couple who are excelling. How does that happen? It's probably the pastor's fault. 
it's probably that we are not putting it squarely to you. It is not enough to pray at the altar. It is not enough to pray in other tongues. The moment you come to a decision in your life where the Lord puts before you the good that you should do and you tell Him no, friends, your life is hanging over hell and you don't realize it. He begins to chastise you, but you don't think it's Him. You think it's the devil. Then before long, you're finding fault with everyone else in the congregation because you feel bad. I feel bad when I go there. Of course you do. Because you will not do the good that you were told to do. So no, no, I'm not in sin. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't curse. I don't, I don't. You are not doing the good that God called you to do. So while your faith grows cold and small and small and small and the power of sin increases in your life, there's nothing left for you but to begin to hate the people that are around you. Blame them and make a preparation to transfer to a more comfortable place. But this is not God's will. It is not God's will. I was asked this week, Pastor, do you think nobody can serve God outside your church? The ignorance of the question is astounding. It is astounding. Do you know why? Do I really think nobody can serve God anywhere? How many churches do we partner with? How many missions works do we do around the world? The question is not, are there other churches that a man can serve God in? The question is, where did he call you? And when did that become optional? Was it before or after I said something you do not like? That's when it becomes optional. Friends, this is not historical Christianity. You pick up a book written from 1650s and you will find out how different it actually is. Because they travailed under their burden until they had such a revelation of God that nobody, not the devil himself, could convince them that they were not full of his power. We ask people, when were you saved? And they say the same thing over and over. I think it was around the time I was eight. You ask them when they fell in love with a particular football team, they tell you the moment. I said, well, Pastor, you're trying to invalidate my salvation experience. It's up to you to validate your salvation experience. It's up to you to live a life that proves your profession was true. Yes. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are, what is that word? Being saved. Sometimes, I grant you, it says they were saved like it was past tense. Sometimes it's future tense. They will be saved. But this passage says being saved. Perhaps it's all three. Perhaps there's a moment when you get put on the right path. And as long as you stay in it, you are saved. Maybe while you're walking in it, you are being saved. And maybe as you point to that future destination, you can say, I will be saved. But you know what you cannot do today? You cannot say that it is a finished work in the sense that you have nothing left to do. Let us listen to this audio. This man says it better than I do. The doctrine of regeneration. Look at the Wesleys. Look what they had to face for a moment. And, my dear, with you. What was it? Everybody believed they were Christian. Thoroughly Christian. Why? They were baptized as infants, brought into the covenant. They were confirmed. They lived like devils. Regeneration was traded for a type of creedalism, 
that was given authority by the religious leaders of the day. And then here comes the Wesleys. No, it is not right with your soul. You are not born again. There is no evidence of spiritual life. Examine yourself. Test yourself if you are in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. Ye must be born again here in America because of the last several years, several decades of evangelism. The idea of born again is totally lost. It only means that at one time in a crusade, you made a decision and you think you were sincere. But there's no evidence of a supernatural recreating work of the Holy Spirit in your life. If any man, not if some men, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And now, it's the same today. What do we face? I'll tell you what we face. It's not a sort of infant baptism necessarily most of the time. It's not a high church confirmation by an ecclesiastical authority. What we face is the sinner's prayer. And I'm here to tell you, if there's anything I've declared war on, it's that. You say, Brother Paul, yes, in the same way that infant baptism, my opinion, was the, was the golden calf of the Reformation, for the Baptists and the Evangelicals and everyone else who's followed them today, I'll tell you, that sinner's prayer has sent more people to hell than anything on the face of the earth. You say, how can you say such a thing? Go with me to Scripture and show me, please. I, I would love you to stand up and tell me where anyone evangelized that way. The Scripture does not say that Jesus Christ came to the nation of Israel and said that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, who would like to ask me into their heart? I see that hand. It's not what it says. He said, repent and believe the gospel. How men today are trusting in the fact that at least one time in their life they prayed a prayer and someone told them they were saved because they were sincere enough. And so in their salvation, if you ask them, are you saved? They do not say, yes, I am because I'm looking unto Jesus and there is mighty evidence giving me assurance of being born again. No, they say one time in my life I prayed a prayer and they live like Devils. But they prayed. A prayer. And some of them, I heard of one evangelist who was coaxing a man to do that thing. Find the man felt so uncomfortable, the evangelist said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll pray to God for you. And if it's what you want to say to God, squeeze my hand. Behold the power of God. Decisionism. The idolatry of decisionism. Men think they're going to heaven because they have judged the sincerity of their own decision. When Paul came to the church in Corinth, he did not say to them, look, you're not living like Christians, so let's go back to that one moment in your life and when you prayed that prayer and let's see if you were sincere. No, he said this, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. 
Because I want you to know, my friend, salvation is by faith alone. It is a work of God. It is a grace upon grace upon grace. But the evidence of conversion is not just your examination of your sincerity at the moment of your conversion. It is ongoing fruit in your life. It's the ongoing fruit in your life. Oh, my dear friend, look what we've done. Isn't a tree known by its fruit? Isn't a tree known by its fruit? Everywhere and at every time, this was consistent Christian teaching until here recently. Now we've said, no one rightly judges me. Now we've said, who are you, a man? To look at me. <coughs> Jesus himself said every tree bears a certain kind of fruit. And good trees do not bear bad fruit. He said it. He said it in the very same chapter. He said not everyone who says Lord, Lord will be saved. Tell me that this is not an apostasy going on in our midst. Tell me that it has not creeped up on the fringes of our lives so that we think as long as we don't commit obvious sins that the world calls sins, that we're right with God. When the Bible defines sin as knowing good that you should do and not doing it. Amen. We'll sit and we'll pray about it. We'll talk about it until we have justified it right out of our mind. But the Bible says we sin when we know the good we ought to do and do not do it. This is what the Bible says. A genuine call. How do we test ourselves to see if we are in the faith? I believe that it begins with the genuine call of God. You're going to notice something. On all of these slides, and I've never, I mean almost never, put together slides. John, you've got to do something about the feedback up here. I've never put together slides to keep you from having to turn to the Bible. This is not so that we're more seeker sensitive for you. I wanted to display something for you. When the early church wanted to know about salvation, they did not have a New Testament to look at. So I have put Old Testament scriptures for you in every case because when you get familiar with the New Testament scriptures, they become trite to you. When we say for the wages of sin is death, you're like, yeah, 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 I know that. But where did it come from? Where did the idea come from? Was it easy for the man who wrote it? See, our salvation experience has become cheap. It's become ascending to three or four intellectual principles showing no fruit in daring anyone who challenges you. This can't work. There'll never be real revival like this. How many of you would like to see yeah. revival? Amen. You cannot do what you want to do rather than what God has told you to do and expect revival. Amen. How many times, don't you raise a hand, how many times have you known that God said for you to do something? You even proclaimed it to other people and then you backed up without doing it. But you've excused it away now as if God changed his mind. Now once you've done that once, how many times does it become that much easier to do? How many times in your own Christian walk have you faded out of fellowship for a period of days, weeks, maybe months, come back because the Lord drew you back and said, I'll never do that again, only to do it again. When did the will of God become optional, friends? It's not. There are more talented, godly people, people with godly potential. In this room, we could change the world with just what's in this room if we were solely sold out 
But mostly, mostly, there's just a handful in here that are totally sold out. That's just the truth. There are only a small percentage that would definitely die for the gospel, although everyone says they will. But you know how that you know that it is not true? You do not make the hard decisions for the gospel now. If it is cramping your life, if it is difficult, if it causes pressure, you find a way out. You use any one of a drop-down list of Christian excuses. I'm saying that I do not believe that God will accept that. Hosea 11, a genuine call. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Do you recognize that? It's quoted in the book of Matthew. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. Do you hear how this works? The natural state of a human being is that God calls. And what do they do? What do you do? He says, here now, when you say, when I get around to it. He says, I need you here now. I love you and I'm drawing you and I work for you. And you say, but I have other things first. I'll fit you in when I can. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to images. There's a battle for the soul, friends. There's a battle for the soul. And you might be able to attend church twice a week in some arena. And maybe nobody will ever notice. But I feel a very personal responsibility that if you messed up and pledged your allegiance to Jesus in this place, that if I don't tell you what I know to be the truth, I feel shame and guilt and I will not live with shame and guilt because I am a born again, baptized in the Holy Ghost believer and that's not how he intended for me to live. I believe that our God has got more for us. But once you resist him once, once you say no in one area, the areas multiply in your life and you think it's just fine. So before long, you're not a real marriage anymore. You're not a real Christian anymore. You just speak the language. And nobody seems to notice because the language is good enough in our time. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. Healed and saved. Same word there. I led them with the cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. With loving kindness, he drew them. How many people have professed in this place after being here for a couple weeks? This is amazing. We'll be with you forever. He drew them with the cords of loving kindness. He showed them the sweetness of his spirit in regular people. Until you step on someone's idol. And then the claws come out. I put John 6.44 on the screen to show you. Perhaps when Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Maybe he had a scripture like Hosea in mind. We all would agree that we know you can't come to, to the Father unless Jesus draws you. But I want to ask you, when did he draw you and how? What can you demonstrate in your life that says, during this period, I felt his pulling. I felt his pulling. And then what was the result of that? See, when all we can do is point to a date when we were 8 years old, or a date when we were 30 years old, 
but you cannot point to all of the events after it. What good is that kind of faith? This genuine call of God is a challenge to us. It may start with a curiosity about God, but it brings you to a place where you recognize His Spirit is moving you. In Psalm 31 through 3, He says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? The person whose God's Spirit is dealing with comes to a gripping conclusion. It's actually oppressive. It is crushing. If you don't do something about the sin in my life, I will go struck down into hell alive. In my life, this began to really move in me during my teenage years. But between 16 and 18, this caused me to consider suicide. Say, so how could the Lord drawing you cause you to consider something like that? Let me tell you how. Because it began to illustrate for me how far I was from His will. And the devil told me it was hopeless. The call of God is a spiritual battle. But He broke through in that. He broke through. As I began to understand the weight of my sin, then I could begin to understand His work. How many people do you know that say they're a Christian but cannot tell you about the weight of their sin that fell on them? I'm telling you today, I'm calling you into open account. If you did not have an extended period of time where you wrestled with your own guilt, I publicly challenge your salvation and I'm not ashamed to do it. Amen. When I met Rick Lohan and I began to speak with him about my love for Jesus, I could see a love for Jesus, but he was grinning with something else. He still remembered the weight of the previous life. It was not an easy decision to come to the Lord. Not an easy decision because he felt so far from him. This greasy grace that is being spread around that says you don't have to wrestle with this. You don't ever have to feel the weight of your sin. You don't have to know what a monstrous enemy of God you are. Just run up here and, and raise a pinky. Is not scriptural. It never has been scriptural, and it never would have been accepted in the English-speaking world until this century. Sin hardens a heart. You can only murder so many babies, only watch so many filthy things. You can only walk in unforgiveness and love the pleasures of the flesh in Vanity Fair so much before you lose the ability to discern what is God's will and you end up saying completely ignorant things like who are you to judge me? You end up saying you think I can only serve God in your church. You end up saying these kind of things and don't even realize that if it was inscribed on stone it would be the millstone around your neck on judgment day. This Psalm 130. Maybe this is what Paul had in mind when he said, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The Apostle Paul cried out that he was wretched. Who in here knows what the seventh chapter of Romans is even about? 
It's about that struggle with sin. And when he thought about it, he considered himself wretched. But he had a rescuer. Have we focused on the rescuer so much that we forgot about the wretchedness of sin? So much that we can say he's our rescuer while we live in sin? So much that we can say, yes, Jesus is my Lord, and he's my Lord because 25 years ago I said he was? While we're in the wretchedness of sin? Let's go back to 2 Timothy again. You don't have to turn in your Bible on recalling it to your mind. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Weighed down with all kinds of sin and evil desires. Always learning. Never able to acknowledge the truth. Am I making that up or did the apostle write that? He wrote it, friends. We must have been talking about some other time, right? Has it ever fit more? How do you go from the best-selling book outside the Bible in the entire English-speaking world being Pilgrim's Progress to a day when the events that are pointed to in the book as wicked and evil uh, epitomized by a town called Vanity Fair that killed the saints is actually a best-selling magazine in our country. How do you go from that? The way that you do it is you tell everybody that nobody can know their heart. The way that you do it is you tell them if they one time prayed a sincere prayer, it doesn't matter about the rest of their life. Nobody can judge them. If you're not comfortable in that church, if it doesn't have good children's church programs, if it makes you feel a little squeamish, go find another church. It's America. There's plenty of churches. That's how you can do something like that. The question then becomes for us, and look, I mean, I can hear the, the devilish thoughts racing through people's minds. Oh, this is cultish. <laughs> now, Jesus was cultish. You know why? He accepted no rivals. None. God said, you shall have no gods alongside me. Amen. I'm telling you, he is jealous. He is a consuming fire. Amen. Hallelujah. We think that it's mercy. We think that it's mercy that it goes unjudged. You know why it's not mercy that it goes unjudged? Because we continue in our wickedness. You've been debating a decision for a year. When is 365 revolutions of the earth not enough time to make a decision as led by the Spirit for Jesus? Oh, it's not a year? It was two, three, four, seven? When do we say we're not debating it or contemplating it anymore? We're in open sin. Well, we don't say that because Americans are never in open sin. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Friends, when the call of God begins, you get a revelation into who you really are. The number one thing that I hear, and this has been growing since the 90s for sure, and some of you are older and smarter than me, will be able to point back much further. But in my life, I've observed this change. When you ask people in a religious setting, tell me about yourself, they describe themselves in glowing terms. They're unable to name even a single fault because they have a religious facade built around them that they don't want anybody to look through. It used to be that to come to the cross required you to realize your life, not the weight of the world, your life was nailing him to it. So I want to ask you, what in your life is nailing him to it? Then and now, what is it? What area are you disobedient in that is the same as driving a stake through the hands and feet of the Messiah? We don't like to think in those terms. 
We're fine with saying, well, sin put him there. We're fine with saying all of our sin put him there. But when we bring it down to the pornography you viewed last week, we don't like that. When we bring it down to the commitments you made to the living God in public and have turned back on within a week, we don't like to bring it down to that. Who are you to judge me? Is this biblical Christianity? Who are you to judge me? Does not the very first two human beings that were brothers ever teach us the story that we are our brother's keeper? Of course, you've got to read something like that to know it. We'll accept people in our pulpits that never open a Bible. We'll accept anybody who is talented or good looking or who can sing or might be able to draw a crowd. How many pastors are there out there you think couldn't quote 10 scriptures without a teleprompter? How many out there that if they could quote them could not tell you how they wrestle with them and interact with them? We hold that kind of standard for our pastors. How about you? Well, I've just never been good at memorizing. I'm not asking you to memorize something. I'm asking you to wrestle with the Word of God, examine your condition. Don't hate me. Don't you, Well, you can hate me. I, I'm, I'm good with that. But this book is the ruler. It's the standard. And when you can't quote three verses out of it, but have the audacity to look at me and say, who are you to judge me? You're lucky I didn't call you a fool to your face. Oh, who's pastor talking? I'm talking to you, every one of you. I love you desperately, but I do not love you enough to bend the truth for any of you. I love you if we've known each other 20 years and your walk has become stagnant enough to tell you your walk is stagnant. Say, who are you to judge me? You don't know how hard my work is. You don't know how hard my life is. Friends, this is the kingdom. I know there's not as many smiles as there used to be. I know there's not as much joy as there used to be. I know that when you say you're going to do something, I no longer know if you're actually going to do it. I know that. Who are you to judge me? Well, please just go to a different church. Well, that'll solve a lot of problems, won't it? It'll handicap the ministry that God called you to. Shame on you if you take secret delight in that. And it'll shipwreck your faith. Why? You can't serve God somewhere else? Of course you can, if He called you somewhere else. But you can never serve God in disobedience. How can you know the good that He calls you to do and do not do it? Well, it's out of my hands. Well, then take it to the Lord in prayer. Amen. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So I need you. I need somebody else to tell so-and-so. My God, am I trying? We put them online. We share them. It's always that the people that need to hear the messages, the worst, are not there on the days they're given. Why do you think that is? Do you think the call of God is spiritual warfare? Let's go to the next one, Joy. A profound realization of who we are. This leads us to a place. Friends, if you knew you were on fire, if you absolutely knew that you were branded as an enemy of God, I doubt you could stand there with your arms crossed so callous as sometimes people look at me. In Psalm 119, verse 81, listen to this. My soul faints with longing for your salvation. Poor David just didn't understand. He didn't understand how instant like oatmeal it is. Poor David, he just didn't understand all he had to do was squeeze the preacher's hand at the right moment. 
My soul faints for longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail looking for your promise. And said so the promise fails, his eyes fail. You ever needed something? Wanted something? Needed a change in your condition so bad that all you could cling to was God's promise about it? As much as I've said I know some negative things about your lives because we're family and I do. I've watched some of you cling to the promises of God. I've seen you endure unimaginable things. Survive shipwrecked marriages. Raise children. Seeing you do amazing things. Now consider the opposition that stands in front of you this moment. And tell me, in what way is it bigger? In what way is it more worthy of you turning back than those other troubles you already beat? Yes. But we don't phrase it like that. We simply cross our arms, look the other way, and act like it's not happening. Friends, that's not Christianity. We have to examine ourselves to see where we stand in the faith. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? Well, not longer than 30 seconds in the church, and, and you're going to have somebody declare you saved. Though I am like a wineskin in smoke, I do not forget your decrees. A wineskin in smoke. Anybody guess at that? I am dried up, devoid of strength, cracking, incapable of doing anything good, unless you help me. When did you get like that? And was it only once? Because salvation is a walking with the Lord. If He's not putting you in this position so regularly that you're utterly dependent upon Him, you might be walking in your self-sufficiency rather than His righteousness. The times I've been closest to the Lord were when I knew I was the furthest from Him. If you don't understand that, I'm sorry. Amen. If it had happened to you, you would. <laughs> he is the gentlest to you when you recognize how absolutely far from Him you are. Amen. Amen. You get nowhere with God by holding your head up high, making sure the image is perfect. That's called pride. Blaming everybody. And taking nothing into account yourself. Maybe everybody is guilty. Who else is guilty? We are. We are. So I walked by you and I didn't say hello. I'm terribly sorry that that happened, Jacob. It didn't happen to Jacob. How do you miss a tall redhead, right? <laughs> but if I walked by you and I didn't say hello, don't you have to ask why you didn't say hello to me? Why is this always one way? Why am I, your pastor, on a different plane than you? Did the Bible put me there? It surely doesn't. Maybe we're comfortable with our leaders on a different plane than us because then they have to live like the gospel, but we don't. I bet that's it. Maybe this is why there's an increasing tendency for pastors to live aloof and high and exalted and far from the congregation, believing familiarity to be a curse rather than a blessing. Psalm 119, 131 says it as good as anything could. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. When could you describe your life as panting, longing 
yearning for the next thing he tells you to do, which is what a command is. Turn to me and have mercy on me as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Hear this, let no sin rule over me. If you are fighting for your right to live, not doing what God has already told you to do, and you want to defend that position, you are asking for sin to master you rather than Jesus. This is Romans 6, friends. Have you ever wondered how they wrote it? So, well, Eric, I know because I've been in church all my life. They wrote it by divine inspiration. Well, how was this written? Inspiration is meeting inspiration, friends. This word was in their hearts. At best, we have doctrinal statements in our hearts and those to justify us. How could you ever have imagined a doctrine like eternal security, having read the Bible? How could you ever even imagine such a thing if you weren't trying to justify sin in your midst? You know what is eternal security? When there are apples on the apple tree, you can be eternally sure that it is an apple tree. God does not trick a man. God is not in the business of, of blessing you so that he can ultimately curse you and steal it from you. He's faithful, but we are utterly faithless. You know that you've come to be in Jesus when he has rescued you from sin. Don't think you can live in sin and it be okay because you had an experience or 10 years of experiences. There is no place in your life you can ever say, I've been obedient enough. Now, now these things are optional. I've earned it. That is not biblical Christianity. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. You know, in the New Testament, you're familiar with the passage that says everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved? Yeah. None of you are familiar. Only Mirna is familiar with that. Are you familiar with everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved? Yeah. There's a little note right there. It's Romans 10, 13. It's in about five places. Nowhere in the New Testament is it written alone in the New Testament. It is always quoting Joel. It's always quoting Joel 2.32. you know why? On the day of Israel's greatest calamity, when the crushing weight of their sin is hanging above their head, everyone in that position who calls on the Lord, He will save. You know who He will not save? Those who are already right in their own eyes. He will not do it. Those who have already heard His will and simply said, no. He will not save a people like that. He was asked in Luke 13, is it true only a few will be saved? How can you read his answer and come to the conclusion that most are saved? But let me ask you, when we walk around, when we see each other, when we talk to each other, don't we have this general tendency to go, I mean, I'm not questioning his salvation, but why would we say that? The word puts the presumption of doubt upon their salvation, not the presumption of assurance, what is assurance of salvation? Freedom from sin. Amen. The Amen. power of God in your life. Amen. Measured by those standards. I'm not going to ask you to look to your left and right. Let's just look in a mirror. 
Measured by those standards, how sure should you be? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Say, so, well, I passed all the scripture tests. I, I, know, the, I know the charismatic Kung Fu, Eric. I, I mean, I, I can quote Acts 2.44. I can stand my ground and I, and I know that, that back then it, it, it happened. I'm not talking about back then. Since you began the race and have been running in the right direction, are we going to have to pull Galatians out and say, who cut in on you? Are we going to have to examine whether or not you're on a road of your own making or the one of the king's highway? You know, in Pilgrim's Progress, there were all these, these paths. And the paths, they were just a little gentler on the feet and they went right alongside the king's highway for most of the time. So it was such a temptation. Friends, that's not a little path. That is the broad way. It is the wide way. It's the highway to hell that they sing about and don't know they're on. I don't want anybody to be on that. I don't want somebody to sit in our midst and think, I'm good because I heard the word. I want you to have the kind of assurance that comes from a complete revelation of God permeating your very being. Micah 7.18 says it this way. It's a man who got a revelation. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Amen. You know who knows when they've been forgiven? The one who's been forgiven. Amen. You don't need somebody to tell you. Amen. I went from wanting to kill myself to wanting to jump up and down on top of the roof and tell the whole world. They arrested me. They persecuted me. They did everything they could do and couldn't stop it. And Matthew Piro was there. He can tell you for truth. Like we say in Louisiana. <laughs> you could see it on my face. When did that happen to you? Well, who are we to judge salvation? I'm, I'm just saying, we all have the opportunity to be touched by the same Savior. Usually when you hear these stories, what you hear is, I prayed, man, I showed such faith. I pressed in, I fasted, I, I cast out everything. And so, ah, Jesus appeared. You know, that was not my experience. You know what my experience was? I was pressed low. I was beat down. I was so deep in that dark, gloomy mire that I was considering ending it all. That's where he came. That's where he came. Was your experience any different than that? The mire goes by many names, but that's the experience. So let me ask you, when were you there? When were you there? If that was Rick's experience, and that's my experience, and that was Matthew's experience, and God's not a respecter of persons, why is that not your experience? Well, see, I was a pretty good old boy, and then I decided to follow the Lord. Liar. Liar. You're lying to yourself, you're lying to the people around you, and you're lying to God, and He knows the difference. You can get on the right way, but if you didn't start at the starting line, friends, you're going to be disqualified in the end. The Boston Marathon was held one year, and somebody jumped in, and they appeared to have won it. Of course, they didn't start at the starting line, so they were disqualified. Never has that been more true of the masses than now. And it's true because we don't acknowledge sin anymore. We surely don't do it openly. Everything's a private matter, except blessings. Those are public. Public blessings. I tithe goes on a license plate. Show everybody how holy you are. 
Because this is exactly what Jesus would do. Who is like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. How do you find out something like that? How do you know what an apple tastes like? You could read about it all day long. Would it do it justice? If you haven't bitten the apple, you can only talk about it. And friends, everybody in America can talk about Jesus. Amen. They can all talk about it, but they don't know what the apple tastes like. They don't know what it is to have the death sentence and feel from God, not from men, that it's been relieved. Are you hearing me? From Amen. God. You feel Him reach into you, pick you up, Amen. and do something with your life. You feel Him. You don't need a pastor to tell you you're saved. He's not allowed to do that anyway. They do it, but we're not allowed to. His Spirit begins to bear witness with your spirit. Amen. Then every pastor you've ever known could stand against you and say, I believe you're in error like they did Charles Finney. Because I've examined your life, and if you are the best that there is to offer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on your attempts to send me to seminary. You could stand like Wigglesworth. It doesn't matter that it could pass laws against you and you would know because God Himself assured you of it. That's the doctrine of eternal security that God assured you of it. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. What is the mark of the power of the gospel? Power over sin. And hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You cannot be smoking pot you cannot be in ongoing sin. You cannot know good that you should do and decide it's optional and say that you're experiencing this. You shame Jesus to avoid the shame that should be on your own life. When Brother Zeke preached, he said your sin cost his son his life, speaking of God. And we're mocking that. Rather than look guilty ourselves, we are mocking that. You tell me what Hebrews 11 says about a man who treads underfoot the Son of God. We can't blame our disobedience on Him. So well, how do I do that? We do it when you claim to be in Him and Him your Lord, but don't do what He says. It's like saying He puts up with it. It's no different than if Gabriel's disobedient every day and he says, well, you know who my daddy is. What's that imply? The daddy doesn't care whether he's obedient or not. Would you think good or badly of me as a parent? And why is God's name blasphemed among Gentiles? You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. We move to the next one. A permeating revelation. I love the way he says it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God. They will return to me with all their heart. Amen. Jeremiah 24, 7. Amen. You want to know that you belong to the Lord? Tell me Amen. that all of your heart belongs to Him. Tell me that sin is not mastering you. Amen. Tell me that you travailed before God until He gave you victory. read stories about revivals in years past where the pastor turned off the light and went to lock the doors and leave and could not get the people to leave the altar because they didn't get what they were after yet. We start looking at our watches at 
but we cry for revival. How does that work? What makes us so confident that we're the greatest generation that's ever lived? So confident that we can do it our own way. So confident that we can change the gospel so that it will appeal to more people. What does that? I don't think it's the holiness of God that does that. Jeremiah 31, describing the new covenant, says it this way. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. Come on now. When did God put His law in your mind? When did you travail under a burden of sin and He relieved it and replaced it with His Word so that now your thoughts and His are being commingled? When did that happen? So, well, you know, it, it, it kind of did when I was eight. I doubt it. At best, you may have made a profession that you would make good on it later. But I seriously doubt this happened to you then. It may have. There are a few exceptional ones out there that that is the case. But most people that tell me things like that, it's an excuse to say, I've been good a long time, Pastor. Don't look any further. We're all good here. Those things you're talking about, sin and righteousness and judgment, I swear that away years ago. It's somewhere back in my shed, locked away. Is that where you are? Squared it away years ago? I can look around the room and I know some of you well enough to know you've been playing with God for years. I know it. You know it. Your family knows it. But you're just going to keep doing it because it's not judgment day yet. You've decided that lusts are more important than righteousness. Well, Corinthians says very clearly, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. And it may be that some limp-wristed preacher will tell you that's just not God's best for you. I'll tell you, you will go to hell for it. You'll go to hell for it because it would send me to hell because God is righteous. Amen. Do you really think that I could decide that I prefer to do something rather than what God has told me to do and He's going to let that slide? you really think so? So, well, Pastor, what about grace? What about the grace? Grace is that He didn't kill me already. He's given me a chance to repent. Amen. 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 Let's talk grace if I'm wronging you. Hmm? Then It's funny how you define grace differently if somebody's wronging you. I slap you in the face and ask for grace. Slap you again, ask for grace. Slap you again, ask for grace. Wouldn't you say grace had been extended when you didn't hit me back? Grace is not there so that you can slap me an unlimited number of times, is it? It's funny how we think rightly about uh, ourselves and not about God, huh? I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Say from least to greatest. Least to greatest. You mean you don't have to have memorized a certain number of things? You would know God? How do you know Him, friends? He had to download His Word into you. You had to make room for it. To make room for His Word, you had to first realize how utterly wicked your thoughts were. You had to look at how sinful and pitiful your condition was so that you could completely abandon it. That's called repentance. And He could fill you with a new life. This is little known today. Today what we do is we make a very small space somewhere in the pantry for Him. Lord, you know it's true that I've done a few bad things in my life and I wish I hadn't done them. You'll save me from them. I'll make you a big part of my life. We don't say that, but our actions say it. 
That's what our, our actions say. Matthew and I have been talking an awful lot about where the Lord has taken this church. We have goals. We have things that we're praying through, pushing through. I can tell you, you don't build big crowds preaching this. But whoever survives it, applies it, and passes the test, they're the kind you want when you have cancer. Amen. They're the kind you want when you lost your job. Amen. They're the kind you want when it's moving day at your house. Oh, yeah. Please don't get the idea that I'm against you. I love you. Amen. Amen. I love you enough to tell you what nobody else is telling you. Right. Amen. I love you parents enough to tell you you're the biggest hindrance in your children's lives sometimes. You do too much for them. You leave no room for God. I love you children enough to tell you if you don't cut those strings with your parents now that you're adults, God might cut them. And how sad would that be for you to know that that was your fault? Well, it's quiet all of a sudden, isn't it? You'll tolerate no other lords. Daddies, mamas, you cannot do everything for your children and expect the Lord to be their Lord. From 13 on, you're supposed to be emancipating them. You hear me? They're supposed to be adults at some point. <clears throat> Parents, you've got a child that you know is in sin and you continue to finance their life, you're becoming an enemy of God. You are. All you've got to do is look backward at your life and you'll find out that that's true. All you have to do is open Hebrews 12 and look and see that God disciplines those he loves. And you realize he's trying to get your attention. But we just don't say those things in church anymore. Pilgrim and Faithful fell asleep in the enchanted land. Actually, they fought it off, but they succumbed to a flatterer. The shepherd had warned, you're going to face a flatterer. Don't you follow him. They did anyway. They found themselves with a net spread. They were trapped in it. The flatterer spreads a net under your feet, the Proverbs said. The angel that freed them also beat them. So you remember next time to heed the word of the shepherd. You know, that was a best-selling novel for 300 years, but not so much anymore. The Psalms say, better that a righteous man strike me. But we don't feel that way so much anymore. Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You know how you know that you know that you know that you know the Lord. You have turned over every stone in your life. You have felt the choking weight of your sin that crucified Him. And He said, I'm taking that from you. And the condition is that you follow me. You say, wow, I made that decision. You also ought to be able to look back and see the mile markers. You ought to be able to say, I followed him here. I followed him here. It almost cost me my life, but I did it. I was scared. Without his strength, without his grace, there's no way I could have done it. But I did it here and here. And you know what? After you've done all of that, you still don't get to stop. Because he's going to ask something of you tomorrow. That's what lordship is. It's not elective. It's not if you decide. You go where he says. You do what he says. We all have learned to agree to that so easily. As many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. We can quote from Romans 8, very much like Jeremiah 31. But when it comes down to saying, tell me this month what he led you to do, that you were terrified to do, that hurt to do, that was scary for you to do, and you did it anyway, the room goes silent. 
No, not for all of you. Some of you can even sit in this sermon now and smile and be excited because you know that you passed the test. But there are a whole lot more heads hanging down than there are making eye contact. I've been a pastor long enough to know exactly what that means. That means even if you don't like the job I'm doing, God does. That's what it means. Preached on weakness a couple weeks ago because I'm full of them. But you know what I'm not? I'm not a slave. Sin is not going to master me. I'm not going to know that God has asked me to do something and simply tell him no. You ever know why David was declared a man after God's own heart? It wasn't because he didn't sin. It wasn't because he didn't have weaknesses. It's because he did everything God told him to do. We define sin so much differently than God does sometimes. I'm not excusing you from those vices. I'm telling you I'd rather you have a vice but do whatever God said to do than have no vices but also never do what God told you to do. I think one's an outward holiness and the other is a heart issue. Let's move on. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. In what manner, Jesus? How? What do you mean? Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, would you describe you knowing Jesus like Jesus knows the Father? Would you say that you're intimate with Him like that? Would you say that He's intimate with you like that? See, we throw these big blanket things up like God knows everything. And of course I know Him. He's my Savior. How well do you know Him? Have some of the things that I told you today surprised you? then you must not know Him as well as you think you do. See, we think that we know Him well because we don't read His Word. We don't see the things that He does in His Word. We're never shocked and we're never surprised because we get gospel light. We're never astounded that God did something because we don't even know it's there. We never want to play Bible trivia. There would be nothing more convicting in this room than to play Bible trivia. How many hours could you play Call of Duty, young people? But you don't want to... And what we, everybody's got the same excuse. You know, I just don't memorize things well. Did the Bible say you'd memorize it? Or did He say that He would download it into your heart? That you would know Him and He would know you. See, we're full of excuses, friends. There's a battle going on for your life. Say, oh, no, no, I'm saved, I'm good. I hope that you're not so dense, so hard in your heart that you could sit hearing what I'm telling you and have such a quick reaction. This is a day for soul searching. The people of God in the book of Nehemiah tore their clothes. They said, our sin is up higher than the heavens. It's, I we can't breathe. Let's move forward, Joy. The Holy Spirit will begin to bear witness with you when you get it right. He will not bear witness with you until you get it right. In fact, he will chastise you and you'll say it's the devil, you'll say it's circumstance. You'll probably go deeper into debt to try not to feel the pinch he's trying to put on you. The Holy Spirit will bear witness when you get it right. Isaiah 44 verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees. By flowing streams, one will say, I belong to the Lord. Amen. Another will call himself by the name of Yaakov. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. When does that happen? When the Spirit of God comes and quenches the thirst of the dry and parched land. If you're already a well-watered garden, you don't get it. You don't get the attention of the physician if you have no need. 
Have you ever met somebody that was deceived? Yeah. Did they know they were deceived? No. And what makes us think we would know if we were deceived? Who are you to judge me? Isn't it true that occasionally you might even see more rightly into someone else's life than your own? Who are you to judge me? Sounds like we hate accountability, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Sounds like we're saying what we want is the kind of relationship with Jesus and his church that we can do whatever the hell we want to do. I mean that very literally. And nobody says anything that makes us feel bad. You'll get that kind of life in eternity. All the hell that you wanted to do. You'll get it. You'll get it like the children of Israel got quail coming out their nose. You'll get it. You will get it. The question is, what do you want? Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my word that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children, or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on forever, says the Lord. How do you know? How do you know? Do you know because some fancy preacher, at, uh, I mean, he filled the football stadium. You raised a hand when everybody else did. Maybe you came down when everybody else did. Is this how you know? Not according to this. You know when His Word has so filled your heart and mind that His Spirit is said to be on you and never taken from you. You know when you can look back at your steps and see that they were ordered by God. You know when you feel His empowerment to free you from sin rather than your own wicked desire to continue in it and hide it. Did you know it was religious people that killed Jesus? Did you know that? Yes. Did you know that they were more outwardly righteous than most? Did you know that? But we're so different. It's not us. We would never have done that if we had been there. How many things do you know right now are not right in your life, but you've left, you're going to leave this service and have left every other service without deciding to fix them? For the sake of your own pride, you'd never tell anybody. You know what happens to a pastor when you preach like this? It's not just the people that get mad. The heavens get mad. They do. They stir it up. And you find yourself struggling with things that you should never struggle with and needing God's power. You find that. You know why? Because the devil would like nothing more than to squash me so that you don't hear this. Because there's a spiritual battle going on. There is. Do you think that Jennifer and I wrestle sometimes at night in prayer because we've compromised with the enemy and it's over? I tell you, the only people I know that have lives of relative ease are the ones that are not dangerous to them. Mm. I said, all the ones that I've ever met like that. So why do we seek it so much? Why do we seek relative ease so much? Why do we appease our conscience and pad our flesh all of the time? Could it be that we don't have this kind of assurance? Could it be that the Redeemer has not come and specially touched us? Oh, He did in the past, but we veered off the path. Don't know it. We're like Samson asleep in the harlot's lap. Don't even realize that his anointing is not there. He said, but you don't understand, Eric. 
Back then it was, and I know that it was, yes, but let's go back and see. How many times have you stood up and said this was God and didn't do it? How many times have you said, yes, sir, I know, I know, I know, he's told me, he's told me, he's told me, I know it is God, you're right, and then not done anything about it? How long do you think a disobedient can can continue to be blessed? Friends, none of us are exempt from this. I'm not. You're not. No one is. We have to be led by God. Have to. Or else we're not His. How long did Judas walk with Him? In Isaiah 61, this is the Spirit bearing witness. Have you ever read in Romans 8? The Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are the Son of God. Well, how does that happen? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So tell me, how are you preaching? How's your life preaching? Can you not help but tell? Has He so filled your heart and mind that wherever you go, you're looking for that opportunity? Or are you numb? Are you numb and you don't care? You're just more interested in getting to your next date, getting to your next dinner, getting to your next appointment than you are. Is His Spirit on you and you don't care? Is that possible? The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Why? Because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness to prisoners. Amen. You know, do any of you have in your Bible a little passage that says, Isaiah 61's authenticity is in question. It doesn't appear on some of the earliest manuscripts. Do you all have a mark like that? You know, some of you have a mark in Mark 16, verse 17, that says something like that. You know how I know it's authentic? Because he's saying what Isaiah said. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. These two passages are saying exactly the same thing. When God has entered your life in an authentic way. When He's relieved your burden of sin because you knew you had it. And He's begun to empower you. He bears witness because He put you on His team doing His work. That's how you know. So, Pastor, how could you invalidate my salvation experience? It was always up to you to validate it. It was always up to you to show His Spirit was working in you. You've just been lied to before. So, church, let me ask you. When you look back at this last month, how proud of you are you? When you look back at this last year, did you grow? Man, come on up here. We're just about done with our preaching. I want to share with you Jesus in every way I can from the Older Testament. We're knocking on the door of an hour and that just seems to be the maximum absorption rate for people. I want to tell you that in Deuteronomy 14... We have a list, and the list is of clean and unclean animals. And for a clean animal that is of livestock, there were two requirements. They're on the screen. What are they? Split hoof and a cud. A split hoof and chew the cud. If an animal chewed the cud but did not have a split hoof, what would it be? Why? It's got it 50% right. What if when we read a passage like this, you said, I'm chewing on the Word, but it's not showing up in my walk. I'm unclean. 
What if you said, no, 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 I jumped over the fence another way. I'm on the King's Highway walking in the right way, but I never went through the crushing weight of the removal of my sin. Well, you might have a split hoof, but you do not chew the cud. Every animal that was declared clean was declared clean by two witnesses. Something that was faith and something that was a deed. It could look like a fish, it could be scales, but if it didn't swim like a fish, didn't have fins, it's not a fish for you to eat. Are you hearing me? Sometimes I think we think it's enough to simply chew the cud. And that's what's going on with the church most of the time. Talk. Talk. We can talk. We can discuss any subject that you like. Talk on righteousness. Talk on obedience. Talk. 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 But where's the split hook, friends? Where's the walk? So, oh no, you don't understand. My life is moral. It's upstanding. But it's not based on reliance on Jesus. The crushing weight of your sin being removed. Then you have a split hoof, but you don't know what it is to chew the cut. I think that's probably all I want to share on that today. I want to tell you that I'm in the same boat that you're in. I'm a man who is fearfully, tremblingly working out my salvation. That's not common anymore. We don't even quote the verse. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not conceit and arrogant assurance. You work it out with fear and trembling. I'm telling you, faith must meet deed. Deed must meet faith. If they don't, we deceive ourselves. I've done everything that I know how to do at this second to tell you if you leave this building, and there is an area that you know God has told you to do something and you have not done it, you are in sin and in danger of hellfire and I don't care whether you prophesied here this morning. If you are willfully disobedient, there is no remaining sacrifice for your sin. Please don't do that when it's so easy to get it right. He's not going to ask you to do anything that He will not help you do. You have to break up with a boyfriend? He'll help you do it. Lord, I could help you with that one. <laughs> you have to say something that's hard. He's helped me do it so many times. I've called people that hate me, people that were in lawsuits with me, and begged for their forgiveness because he left me no choice. And you know what? I thought I was pretty good before I did it. Oh, it's all good. I've just gone this fast for those people, you know? begins to rush in and show you how far you are from him so that he can draw you close when he empowers you by spirit to do it. There are things in your life that are not in your control. You're under other people's authority. I get it. Cry out to the righteous judge. Do everything that is within your authority. Do whatever it takes. You know what the best feeling in the world is? It's not a MasterCard experience. The best feeling in the world is when you've done something difficult for Jesus. It may not have been difficult for Gabe to do. It might be easy for Natalie, but if it was hard for you and you did it for him, oh, you swell with heavenly assurance. You swell with heavenly assurance because you know you couldn't do it without him. And he caused it. So many people talk this. But if you don't know what it is to actually feel it, your talk is inoculating you from the experience. Hearing me? 
It's, it's preventing it because you think you have something you don't. I'll stand here for you.